Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Best Hang Podcast featuring Max Kerman, Shane Cunningham, and I am Mike Beerman. Here's a secret you can pass it around. Here's a secret you can pass it around. My head in the clouds and two feet on the ground. Here's a secret you can pass it around. All right. Welcome to the Best Hang Podcast. I'm Mike. We got Max. We got Shane. And we are all here in person hanging out at odds. We've done this before. It's always much more exciting when we're together. But that is not the only exciting thing. Because today on the pod, I'm sure you read this in the description when you fired up the pod to listen to it today. But we have a massive, massive guest. A guest who is near and dear to Max's heart. Somebody that Max was absolutely giddy about mm-hmm. before we actually did the interview. In tears after the interview. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty special. And we are talking, of course, about author Michael Lewis. You know him from The Blind Side, Moneyball, The Big Short. He's got a book out right now called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. Uh, his podcast is Against the Rules. But more importantly, Max, I feel like he is like a, a real hero of yours. I think if you were to make a list of like the top three people that I'd want to t- have a conversation with, he'd be like in the world. He might be up there. And I've already talked to him one time before. I interviewed him for McLean's magazine. And but I think like top three right now off the top of my mind, Barack Obama, number Ooh, one. Nice. Number two might, might be Michael Lewis. Do you even have a number three? Or is it Michael Lewis again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who would be my number three? Like Charles Barkley, maybe? Oh, nice one. Yeah. I don't know. Who would <laughs> be your- Charles Barkley. <laughs> Barack Obama, Michael Lewis, Charles Barkley. That's I pretty like good. That. Well, who'd your top three be? Oh, I mean, you know, Paul McCartney. Yeah. And, and Paul would be pretty cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd like Paul on the spot. We've talked about this many times mm-hmm. over the years, but it's it's sitting at Paul for sure. And we all know Shane's. We know what he's going to say. If you're, if you're what, a regular what am I listener, say, Mike? if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that Shane will most likely say Nathan Fielder. Nathan Fielder's cool. <laughs> okay, so Nathan Fielder shares the same birthday as me, May twelfth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's number one, probably. Yeah. Owen Wilson, number two, mm-hmm. shares the same middle name as me. Wow. Uh, middle name is my last name. My my last name's Cunningham. Owen Wilson's middle name is is Cunningham. Oh, interesting. He's and Owen then, Cunningham Wilson. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. In fact, Unsworth, our good friend Matt Unsworth, yeah. just messaged me that on the weekend, thinking he would blow my mind, but he didn't. And number three. Tim Robbins. Mm, I yeah. think you should leave. Yes. Another yes. great comedian. But yeah, for, for me, Michael Lewis, and it, I know you're probably familiar with his work, even if you don't know it. Uh, if you've watched The Blind Side, won an Oscar, The Big Short, Adam McKay's famous movie about uh, the, the financial crisis, um, Moneyball, if you're a sports fan, the Moneyballization of sports and culture and music and everything uh, has to do with the thing that he wrote. Um, but he's also just one of these guys that is so effortlessly cool. Like he's, he's born and raised in New Orleans. He sort of fell ass backwards into this job on wall street. And he wrote his first book about that liars poker. And he's the guy that Vandy fair calls up when they need someone to profile Barack Obama. Like he, he's just that guy and he does everything with just sort of a great sort of a sense of humor. He has um, a lens that most people don't have on like evaluating a situation. Um, And I just think he's, and he's a handsome devil. I just think that everything about him is is so cool. You're smitten. I am smitten. And uh, so, yeah, having a chance to talk to him was just the best. And he's also doing the podcast rounds right now be- because uh, of the new season of Against the Rules. And um, one thing I should want to note is that he, his family suffered a terrible tragedy um, 
but a year ago, he lost his daughter Dixie in a car accident. She was 19 years old. And we don't get into it in this interview, um, but uh, the way he reflects on her life and the type of grief that he's going through right now uh, is really beautiful and profound. So if you want to hear another excellent interview, uh, Smartless just had him on, and I recommend you listen to the whole thing. And basically, I will consume anything that that guy does. And to hear him touch on, he's had a very sort of charmed life in every possible way. And then this terrible thing has happened, but the way he even reflects on that is beautiful and profound. And, um, we thought about talking to him a little bit. Yeah, about we, it. we discussed it like in our pre-interview of whether we would talk about it, but he has talked about it sort of so, you know, eloquently and sort of so in depth in other conversations that it almost felt like we were just sort of retreading something that he's talked about and something that can be a difficult subject, even though he seems to talk about it with sort of a, a real clarity. Uh, and then we ultimately said, you know, our conversation really isn't about that. And if it goes there naturally, we'll, we'll go there. And then ultimately, you know, it went all over to other places, including Winning Time, the new basketball movie. that yeah. she I, I had the perfect segue to that, by the way. You did. You did. He came in in such a... Oh, winning Time. Winning Time. Just, <laughs> just hammer. <laughs> a project that he is not involved in no. on any level. But his face did light up. He got excited no, to this is it. it. He came into the interview kind of in a jovial mood, as you hear off the top. He's like, this crazy thing is happening on campus. There's an active shooter, not to give the lead away. But uh, and, and it turned out to be totally fine. And he wasn't giddy about the active shooter. It had all been resolved at this point. Yeah. But basically, his day had been thrown out of whack and he was like he was able to you know but yeah he was making joy anytime i I felt like i tried to get sentimental with him yeah he was having absolutely none of it well, we talked about being a stripper yeah we came up with a nickname for him, well shame you have the funniest line of the whole interview because obviously should we t- should we just is that a tease for the That's interview a tease, yeah. okay so you can listen for that when he does say he's a stripper and then shane shane drops an all-time long line i think in the history of the podcast mm-hmm. to be honest. oh wow yeah, yeah the, the quickness the funniness tease. of the name the fact i was telling danica after the interview she laughed and then we saw some other friends of the week she's like tell them about what shane said in that interview. <laughs> so i told the story and i like know, danica teaming me up like that yeah yeah, yeah did, did i seem nervous or different about this podcast. No, you're interview? cool. You were cool. Really? I, I was it's like the Adam McKay duck analogy. Yes. What's that? Explain it. Mike. Well, I mean, people talk about that phrase, uh, you know, like a duck on the top of the water is very calm, but then underneath their legs are going crazy. That's just how they, they paddle. That's right? right. So they actually personified this in winning time in the very first episode where, you know, Jerry uh, bus has to have this conversation. He thinks he's not going to be able to buy the Lakers and he discusses, or he, he sort of describes the duck and they go to one in a pond and you see it just calmly floating across the top. And then the camera goes under the water and you see the feet just going crazy. And so I don't know if in your mind you had that, that anxiety, oh, yeah. like, like, Oh, I'm talking about loose. But on the outside, you were calm as a duck, man. You've been in too many big situations, I think, to outwardly show nervous. I was like blind with nerves, like I like almost like were, couldn't you, read. You were before because when we got on, like for the sort of pre thing, like okay, we'll talk about. But I, I just need a second, and you like put your headphones up, and I could see you like prepping the interview in a way that you haven't, you don't normally get. Like so, before you did feel like that kind of nervousness. That it some was very Shane esque. <laughs> it was uh, also it didn't help though because um, one of uh, our recurring f- uh, figures on the show, book club Maddie. Yeah. I texted him because Matt loves. Uh, Michael Lewis. And I was like, oh, and Matt's really smart and would have interesting questions. And um, I asked him, do you have any questions? Do you want to help me prepare for this interview? Who, who better to do it than you? And he was just so goddamn annoying. Basically, Matt's just like, well, um, I don't know. Like, or is it just you or is it the three of you guys? I'm like, well, I think of the three of us. He's like, has Shane even read any of this stuff? <gasps> oh, I'm going to kill him. I'm gonna- <laughs> oh, I hate that. I hate him now. I, I thought I was indifferent towards him before. Okay. I actually, I actually liked him before, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. He was like, oh, well, honestly, it's like, and it just doesn't even seem like the latest season of against the rules like i think it contradicts a lot of his other work right now so like i just don't exactly get Mm. it i'm like Mm. wrong energy yeah just tell me if you have a fucking question you want to ask him and then he ends up sending six questions that are all three paragraphs long each (laughs) that's why i was so stressed out because i was trying to decipher what the fuck he's talking about in his questions and we're gonna go interview michael lewis in eight minutes and i'm trying to get these questions from brooklyn maddie and i just can't oh god it was stressful i hope he eats his fucking words when he hears my seamless winning time integration (laughs) (laughs) i've listened to against the rules the entire season this was like years ago Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm I'm old school Michael Lewis. You're prepared. Fan. You're prepared and you were a fan, although I guess 100%. one wouldn't assume yeah. as much. And, and the connection to Winning Time, by the way, is Adam McKay mm-hmm. directed The Big Short, yeah. which mm-hmm. is an adaptation of a book he wrote. Yeah. So it wasn't seemingly so, so much of a non sequitur. Yeah. Does it make sense to you guys why I think he's the coolest? No, it's pure totally. Max yeah. obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. 
Is Malcolm Gladwell big for you? He, he's up there for it. Yeah, he because because both Gladwell and Lewis seem to have so much fun doing what they're doing. They don't they don't they're not particularly tortured people. And a big part of their writing is always just sort of like finding interesting people that are seemingly random everyday normal people and finding something sort of brilliant in them. So I think that's really cool. I like intellectuals who can explain things in a very accessible mm-hmm. way to dummies. So it's odd that Frookman thinks that I wouldn't consume his work because essentially Michael Lewis's work is for people it's, like me. It's <laughs> just, just a dummy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you didn't say that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, he might as well have Mike. Yes, Let's face yes. it. Yeah. Um, well, I think what's endearing, and I think for like our listeners, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are big Arkells fans. And you know, you're someone who maybe other people will get the feeling that you have around Michael Lewis, they have that around you. Yeah. And I think it's always really interesting when people who also make creative work and have been successful at it, they still have like a little fan inside them. Mm, yeah. Know? So yeah. Cause I wouldn't really care really, unless I was meeting Paul McCartney or something or Anderson pack, I wouldn't really care that much about meeting another musician, but Michael Lewis. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. We well, kept it cool. And I think it's a, I think this is like a great tease for the interview, but mm-hmm. before we even set up the interview properly, properly mm-hmm. guys, we got a new sponsor. Oh yeah. Coming from, the East Coast. Woo, this is an exciting podcast all around. We got a big name guest who Max is in love with. Uh, we got a new sponsor who the three of us are in love with. We've been drinking this stuff for a while now, so it's pretty exciting that they have come on board and are sponsoring the podcast. And that sponsor is Blue Lobster. Lobster. And uh, oh, we're going to crack that right now. Uh, excellent. You know, uh, last year during the pandemic, uh, they sent me some some free product, and and we also and actually it was before that. Were we drinking it even before the pan- pre pandemic? That's right, we were drinking it in the boardroom when we used to do the podcast and before times. And it's from uh, Nova Scotia. So many of my favorite things are from Nova Scotia, including Joel Plaskett, Sloan, Matt Mays, some of my favorite musicians. Um, they have this sweater that I'm wearing. Sweater it says that says Nova Scotia Spirit Co. And they also have a, uh, another sweater that Shane is wearing. It's called Willing to Learn. So I was thinking we could do a segment here before we get an interview called the Willing to Learn segment presented by Blue Lobster. And I want to start with you, Shane. What is something that you are willing to learn in 2022? What am I willing to learn? Jeez, put me on the spot. Um, and I can't say nothing, right? <laughs> no, you can't say I, nothing. I know everything. Mike, what do you got? What are you willing to learn in 2022? Well, hey, yeah, you didn't you, even you let me... Know, you, give me one chance. Wow. Just because I have a brief moment of being put on the spot wow. and I feel uncomfortable. Just moved right on. I'm, okay, I'm willing to learn, and we haven't mentioned it all podcast, how to... Live without a mustache. Oh. oh my goodness, we buried the lead. Yes, we went I right have to no mustache. Right no, now. we went right to Michael Lewis and, and Blue Lobster. But Shane, you came in. I came in to record, and I didn't realize we're going to get a selfie right now for the socials. No mustache. Shane shaved his mustache, which was surprising when I walked in. You also got a haircut, which looks really nice. Oh, thank you. Double whammy. What was the catalyst? Is it because we're all going to this big 40th birthday in a couple days? Is it? The real thought process was there's one sketch in our sketch show where it is imperative that I do not have a mustache. Mm. And I was thinking of logistics and I just had the solution of, oh, we just shoot this sketch last. And then it just got in my head of, what if you didn't have a mustache? Oh, my daughter's never seen me without facial hair. Mm. How would she react to that? How would this go on TikTok? So I just instantly <laughs> walked in the washroom. <laughs> yeah, with this go on TikTok? <laughs> that ran by my mind. But uh, my daughter's reaction was nothing. <laughs> so it's not going on TikTok. She didn't but care. I walked to the washroom and two seconds, vroom, vroom, walked out with a mu- without a mustache. Mm. And the rest is history. Do you feel like a different man? Yeah, I definitely feel... Um, more exposed, mm. potentially less attractive. I think yeah. you're more attractive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that tattoo under the mustache says, fuck off. <laughs> it's very jarring now that we can see it. Mike, honestly, you're an honest guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you say if mm-hmm. you were someone who, um, you know, what, let, let, let's say you were attracted to men. Yeah. Would you be attracted to me right now? Yeah. You more, look no, I mean more, more so than with the mustache. Yeah. yeah, you look good. I th- I've no, said, no, no, but more. More or less. Okay, well, it's higher because I spent a lot, like the last decade with you okay, with a mustache. So less, then. No, I don't you think can it's say less. less. I don't think it's less. I really don't. I think, I will say this. I think in a broad sense, I think you are more attractive now than you were with the mustache. But the mustache is a unique thing. Like people like what are you idiosyncratic in? things. 
Well, I mean, we're doing a sketch show where you're going to, and I think you're more malleable without the mustache. I don't think you're as specific. And I think that's better for sketch comedy because you can be, you can, we can always slap a mustache on you for a character. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But if you have a mustache in every sketch, like, you know, it could be a cool thing, but also it's less broad. Mm. What do you think, Max? Better looking or less? Better looking for sure. No hesitation. Yeah, you're more of a character, character uh, with well, a mustache. I won't lie. Our last podcast where you mentioned that Bruce McCullough was a little standoffish mm. because of my look, that played a part. Ooh. Maybe next time we hang with Bruce, he'll be he'll be feeling you up a little bit. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm trying to normalize my appearance. <laughs> yeah, you did get it in time for the doc. We're gonna go see the kids in the hall documentary. Actually. I know. Let's see how Bruce reacts. This is gonna be a good uh, test, actually. Mike, what are you willing to learn? Oh man, presented by Blue Lobster. I'm gonna. I'm willing to learn how to lie to a friend who asks if he's better looking without a mustache. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I. I. What? I'm. I'm always willing to learn. Life is a journey. That's why I like this sweater. Because would you learn a new language? See. <laughs> um, uh, do you know love languages mike like 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 um my my, my language of love like acts of service and things of yeah, that yeah. yeah yeah, yeah you, what's danica's love language? acts of service oh it is yeah, yeah what's yeah. what's alex's love language um i can't say no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not appropriate on the mic <laughs> Let's get to the interview. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, anyway, Blue Lobster, uh, very excited to have you guys. Uh, and you know what? We'll have more things that we're willing to learn on the next segment mm-hmm. for the next episode. Uh, in the next episode also, we got more guests in the future. Yeah. We got, we're doing one on Thursday. It's going to be good. But today, our guest is, of course, massive author, Michael Lewis. If you if you haven't read his books, you've almost most certainly seen or heard of one of the movies that was made out of his books. Uh, he's special. Listen to Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think hold it together in spite mm-hmm. of his extreme fan uh, energy that he had going into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should we get to Michael Lewis? Let's do it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How's it going? Hey, Michael. How's it going? Good. It's Shane. It's Shane. So let, me get you, yes. get, let me get gallery view. There we go. <laughs> Shane and Mike. And there's Max. Yeah. Hey. Good to see you. Good to see you. Where are you right now? I am in my office in Berkeley. Oh, nice. Have you been traveling much? Oh, I mean, it's been constant. It's And it's it's not over yet. I've got another... You know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been on tour. Well, I have well. been on tour. But I just came from a really odd uh, day. I went... I was recording the next to last episode of the the podcast for this season of Against the Rules, and it's at the on the Cal Berkeley campus. Okay, right near you. And the the, the whole campus, um, all day has been in lockdown because first they reported there was an active shooter. Oh, and no. Now, and, and so you had you had people. There wasn't an active shooter. There was someone threatened someone, and the, it's not even clear that person is even on the campus. But there are helicopters all over the sky. Oh no! The, the the restaurants around campus are boarded up like they're waiting for an invasion, 
nobody's there's not a soul walking on the streets and actually it felt like you know it felt like an incredibly daring act to get to my podcast studio <laughs> once you're in the podcast studio you're in a bunker so you're all right and i just i just snuck in and out of the cal campus <laughs> anyway uh how are you guys doing are we where are Great. we are we in canada Yes, yeah, just in, outside of Toronto. Yeah, well, I'm in a beautiful uh, Holiday Inn right now in Barrie, Ontario, which is about an hour north of Toronto. We have a show here tonight, so this is just a post-sound check interview. So I'm, I'm very excited. I'm more nervous for this though, Michael, than the actual show itself. You know, um, we well, you, you, already know, know um, gonna, you already know what's going to happen in the show. That's right. <laughs> 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 that's it. Um, well, thanks so much for doing this, and uh, we can get right into it. And uh, you know, Michael, I. I feel like I've listened to every one of your interviews and read every book and listened to every episode of the podcast. Um, but I do want to maybe go a little wider here. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, you find all these interesting subjects um, and seemingly, you know, normal everyday people and you find something brilliant within them. Is there a particularly uh, interesting journey that you took to find one of these people that really sticks out where one thing led to that and that ended up that person ended up being a centerpiece in one of your stories? Um, you mean in any book or any story? Yeah, or, or in the let's most say this, this, you know, in, in the re, in the most recent season, you know, you you meet this guy who who figures out how objects drift in sea, like you know. There, so here's let's take him as an example. You could take almost anyone as an example, mm-hmm. but um, so this, the the season's about experts. Uh, the this character, um, I found his name is Art Allen, um, and. This is, it's a, you know, it shows you how haphazard finding characters actually is. I would, the way this happened was when the Trump shut down the federal government in whatever it was, January of 2018, I can't even remember now, um, and furloughed two thirds of the federal workforce as inessential workers. I had the question, what, who are these people who are like being sent home without pay? Like what makes them inessential? Like uh, if, if they're inessential, if now, why do we even have that kind of thing? <laughs> and um, and I I went to an organization in Washington called the Partnership for Public Service that has gives awards to federal employees. It's an obscure award called the Sammy Award. And for 15 years, they've been like running around the federal government, getting people to nominate other people for award awards for excellence in public service. And they get thousands of nom- nominations. But as a result, they have this database of people who were you know, good at their jobs, presumably, who, um, who've been nominated for this award. And I got them to grind out a list for me of the, uh, from this thousands of the ones who had been furloughed. And it was still thousands. And I just took, it was alphabetical. I just took the name off the top of the list, Arthur A. Allen. <laughs> and it said he worked in the Coast Guard as an oceanographer. So I called him up and I said, um, I want to come see what you do. Now, here's where it gets funny. Where, what he does, it's a bit, I remember I can tell you a little story about what he does, but what he does, what he did, it was so cool, was he figured out people were dying because the Coast Guard had not worked out how objects drift at sea, particular objects. So if you fall off a cruise ship, you're going to float differently than someone who's 300 pounds. You're going to float differently than someone who's in a life preserver. You're going to float differently than someone who's on an upside down sailboat. And you will be, after some hours, in the same ocean, you would be miles apart from those ob- other objects. And he had spent, he had since part of his career tossing unbelievable amounts of shit into the Long Island Sound <laughs> and seeing how it drifted and reducing them to mathematical equations so that they could be inserted into the Coast Guard search and rescue program. And as a result, had saved, I don't know how many lives. Around the world, it's, it's probably thousands of lives. Um, and anyway, so I go see him to talk about this, like, like, all right, you're an essential. What is it you did? And he starts telling me my jaws on the floor. It's really interesting. He's very passionate about it. He weeps when he's talking about the people who he's lost, you know, wow. that kind of thing. And, um, and at the end of it, so this is now a few years ago when I first met him, but we brought him into the podcast just recently, but uh, I spent three days with him in this remote, Connecticut town with his family, had dinner with his family, interviewed his wife and kids, went to his old office, went to the Long Island Sound where he dropped objects into the ocean, talked to him about his life. I'm going back to the airport to come home. And he calls me on my cell phone and he says, hey, uh, you're a writer. 
<laughs> I said, I said, yeah, I was kind of confused. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a writer. He says, you know, you're like an author and your books have been published. And I said, yeah, I think I mentioned that when I first called you, but maybe you didn't hear it, but yeah. And he says, he says, he says, um, I said, well, why did, why did you think I was like with you for three days asking you all these questions? <laughs> and he says, I thought you were just really interested in how objects. <laughs> and, and it, com- it completely captures the spirit of the federal employee. And he was such a, and he was so he like, he wasn't looking for publicity or promotion or anything. It was like mm-hmm. trying to teach me how objects drift to see. And I was trying to describe what it is we were losing when we told all those people to go home and they, they weren't essential. And then, you know, he, he, he's such a good character that I couldn't help but, but build one of the episodes around him. We paired him with someone he saved who didn't know he'd been saved. Yeah. Wow. Jesus saved him. Well, you know, I kind of want to get to that because I feel um, this about my own job is that like I get a lot of attention for what I happen to do. But the guy who's the lighting guy, I think is equally, if not more talented than I am. I'm just happen to be more self-promotional about what I do. If you were to, and it feels like that's a common thing with these, these uh, federal workers, um, they're not good at telling their own story. It takes someone like you, an expert storyteller, to tell their story. If you were to like give a one-page document to one of these people, like here are ways you can get your good ideas across. Have you had this like fantasy where you could help somebody tell their story and get good ideas across the line? Or is it just a different type of personality that, and and they just need to be listened to a little bit more? It's a different kind of personality. They need to be listened to a bit more. You really can't teach, you can't teach them to be different than how they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who, people who kind of, sit down and self-consciously say, I'm going to figure out how to tell my story so people value what I do. Um, it's so transparent. It, it, it ends up kind of always being paint by numbers. And someone like Art Allen would be so uncomfortable doing it. He, he just squirm. It's like, I don't want to toot my own <laughs> home. Even now, I just got a note from yesterday. The podcast just came out, what, a week ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or maybe it was two weeks ago. And he had gotten a note from someone in the Coast Guard saying, basically, I think saying, um, you're getting you're getting too much attention. (laughs) It was a a big team of people who did this thing. The big team of people did this Coast Guard search and rescue computer software. He basically alone did the 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 Mm. how objects drift stuff. And the fact that I was just focusing on that and not spending a lot of time wasting a lot of the audience's time talking about the whole team made everybody uncomfortable. Oh, now, wow. You can't tell a story about the whole team. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's about this guy doing something very particular and he's going to get an outsized amount of attention because I tell the story and it's on a podcast and you just got to live with that. But actually he, he, even now he's kind of uncomfortable with it. Um, so I don't think you could take Art Allen and turn him into a self-promotional machine or nor would you really want to. Uh, it's it, it just it's just not in his nature. Well, well, wouldn't you say then that you know this whole season's about the mistrust of experts and their opinions? Do you think it has more to do with the elites that are sort of in control of the situation and people's mistrust of them because they feel like transparent movers and shakers that have their own political agenda? Do you think if the people representing these experts had a little bit more you know, honor or dignity uh, or grace that? the experts would be listened to a little bit more? Well, they they certainly defer to them and they would put them, force them on stage more. Mm. But, but I don't think of it. So you've reduced, you've reduced the problem to, I think a smaller problem than it is. It isn't just mistrust. Um, so the, I think the big problem, the, the big macro problem that I was interested in is we in this society, the United States of America are, better than anyone has ever been in the world at producing new knowledge and generating new experts. Our government is one place where we do it. We have done it really well. And we're also like number one in the world in not in, in idiocy in not taking advantage of the knowledge. And why is, why is it the, and the pandemic is, is, was a great case and has sort of alerted me to it in a way in that we had generated, we essentially created the pandemic response plan for the world in, we, that we had done, we were, were home to more microbiology labs and more understanding about how to track viruses and more medical know-how than anywhere in the world. And, and yet 
we get this response that is just a numb nut, no nothing response. Um, so the question is like, what's what's the this, what's the source of the disjuncture? And I think mistrust is part of the story. It's not the only part of the story. I think that um, there are a lot of other parts of the story. And and but why people mistrust experts? Um, they mistrust everything more. Trust mm. in every, trust in all institutions has declined. I mean, they mistrust. The first season was about referees. Same story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, same. There's actually a parallel episode. We have an episode where, um, looking at spheres of uh, of life, where the experts clearly have gotten better. I mean, it's not even close. They're getting better and better and better and better. Weather weather forecasters, and where they're getting more and more mistrust, hostility. Um, people tuning out, not listening to what they have to say, um, in spite of getting better and better and better. Doctors, doctors will tell you like the biggest problem in their lives is patients now don't trust the doctor. They they read something on WebMD that says the doctor was wrong, and now they don't trust the doctor. Well, the doctor actually is, you should trust him more now than you trusted him ten years ago, and more than than twenty years ago that he's gotten better and better at what he does. So it's this it's this paradox, um, and I I think so. The trust part of it is I think. It's a great question why there's been this collapse in trust. I don't know what's happening in your country, but the global surveys um, of trust in government and trust, interpersonal trust, like how much you trust the people, your, you know, your citizens, fellow citizens, they're actually pretty stable in most countries. The United States is this anomaly in this collapse in trust that we have had a particular problem with it. And I can, I can we can spitball about why that is, but inequality is definitely part of the Yeah, story. the partisanship up here isn't the same. You know, there's three major parties. People often vote for the center party or the left party. Like they, they can bounce around a little bit more. And also the way politics is reported up here, it's not as salacious. It's not entertaining. It's actually famously kind of boring. Like, yeah. you know, you if you talk to a journalist up here, they might know something salacious about a, a politician's personal life, but it's sort of against the code to ever re- actually print anything about it. So I think that has something. It's less team sportsy up here. People. Keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're an object lesson to the world in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Like, don't be like them. Uh, so, um, but as I say, the mistrust, I think, is just part of the story. I'm really interested in, like, how experts have changed that make it hard for people to understand them. And I think this is kind of like this is Moneyball thing that's gone on across the culture where mm-hmm. it's essentially it's expertise. It's rooted in new ability, a new new data and a new ability to analyze data. And the nature of the expertise is probabilistic. The nature of the expertise is like it's like the weatherman. It's like I can't tell you for sure whether it's going to rain. I could tell you that there's an 80 percent chance it's going to rain. So I can give you I can give you odds and my odds I give you are getting better and better and better. But you, it's very hard in a single instance or even a few instances to say that I know what I'm talking about, right? That if I say there's an 80% chance of rain and it doesn't rain, you say I'm an idiot. But actually, 20% of the time, it what it's not going to rain when I in that forecast. It, 20 out of 100. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't don't really understand probabilities, and there are a lot of experts who are kind of like this now. Nate Silver. Uh, you know, political forecasting has become this way. Sports forecasting has become this yeah. way. All sports analysis analysis have become this way. Um, it's all rooted in statistical thinking, and people don't think like statisticians, and they so they don't really know how to evaluate the expert, and they're quick to dismiss the expert. Um, anyway, it's mm-hmm. so so trust is trust is like only part of the story. Um, and you know, the truth is, coming out of the pandemic, if you look at the way experts behaved in the pandemic here. There are a whole bunch of people, and this is our final episode. Uh, this is there are a whole bunch of people who who were taken as experts, scientists with big credentials. They might not have actually been experts in how you control the pandemic, but they were close enough. They were doctors, mm-hmm. they were PhDs in something who who really were untrustworthy, that they they pushed political agenda rather than following the evidence. And you can kind of see how it, that and, and they haven't really paid a price for it, that there is a market for it. Uh, they've become famous and popular in small circles. Um, so there is experts partly responsible for the for the problem. The incentives that experts face partly responsible for the problem. Shane, go ahead. Winning time. 
Have you watched that show? <laughs> it's funny. That's funny you bring it up. You know, it's now controversial as of two days I, that's ago. That's what I wanted to yes. talk about. Yeah. Um, uh, I So Adam McKay is a friend uh, who's a producer. Um, and, and I'm amazed how much I love the show. I wouldn't, yeah, if you me told too. me, do I want to watch a show about the 1980 Lakers or whatever year it was, or 79 or 80 Lakers, uh, I, I would have said no probably not and um it's totally engrossing yeah oh it's and amazing it's, it, mm-hmm. it is it's totally engrossing it's totally fun to watch i part of it is appetite my appetite for period pieces is through the roof right now i don't want to because mm-hmm. i don't want to be living in this world i want to be living in that world <laughs> and um and it, so that is that's part of what's going on part of this is just performances are great yeah um what I can't, what's interesting to me is I, one of the things that would, would like make a show like that difficult to watch basketball players don't look like normal people, right? They're six foot nine or seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting the way they've got fairly normal size actors to look bigger. Yeah. Uh, they, they persuaded me that I'm actually looking at Magic Johnson and Kareem <laughs> Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. And they not, do a really good not, job. Not, they do a really good job. And and actually, you want to help them do it. They don't have to get every shot right. But if they get enough of the shots where you feel like that's a big looming presence, yeah. uh, you're kind of in with them. And the magic, the the players' performances are, are fantastic. I mean, John C. Riley is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jerry Russ character, when I, I mean, I knew, I know Jerry Russ only by reputation. I've never met him. Um, and I knew that, you know, some people regarded him as a problematic character, but even when I was watching it, I was thinking he's not going to be happy with this. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I, in particular, and there's this thing that goes on with real people who get played by actors. When the actor is not as good looking as the real person, <laughs> uh, when they, when they make them look schlubby or, you know, it, 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 I think deep down that's what bothers the person. If, if, if Brad Pitt was playing Jerry West and playing him exact, exactly the same way. I'm not sure Jerry West would have complained. There's a, there's a, there's literally, there's a story where there's that movie, uh, Nowhere Boy, uh, about John Lennon growing up. And Paul McCartney, I guess, had an issue with it because they made John look so much taller than the actor that played Paul. Mm. And Paul was like, he was not taller than me. We were the same height. And I was like, that was Paul McCartney's takeaway from that film, <laughs> which speaks to exactly what you're saying about the real people. They're just very sensitive to what the th- who that person look what that person looks like on the screen. Yeah. And so I wonder if they might have avoided the whole problem if they had to cast someone who looked better than Jerry. West. Who plays you in a movie, Mike? Who plays you in a movie? Ideally. Who do I? Who yeah, do I ideally. Like? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what age? Um, if it's Liars Poker. Yeah, Liars Poker. Yeah, Angle. Yeah, what's who? Back then, I thought I, 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 the person I was most interested in having play me was because they almost, I mean, they were, the movie was kind of in play for a while. Uh, it was John Cusack. Ah. Hmm. The young John Cusack. I thought he'd have been done it really well. Um, the person, who, the people who were said to have been cast for the thing, and in fact, I know this is a lie because I've spoken to to one of them anyway. Michael J. Fox and um, Tom Cruise. Oh, and, 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 <laughs> and neither. Awesome. I don't think they ever got that far. They all, they did cast and had a. I think they had a deal with Marlon Brando to play John Goodfriend. Wow, then that would have been great. Um, the me now, if I, if somehow I walk into a movie of one of my books, uh, I don't know, Jason Bateman. <laughs> hey. like, he's great. Uh, he's really good. And if I have a dark, sinister side, he'll find it uh, <laughs> and, and, and be able to depict it. Right. He's so he's so good at at being something other than he looks. Shane mentioned um, winning time. And I think why that's interesting is because obviously that was based on, you know, a, a, a book and it was an adaptation and the real people obviously are sensitive about it. I, I don't know if you read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He just had a big sort of piece about it on his Substack, which was fascinating. Um, my question for you is with your own work, you know what I mean? And when it's sort of taken by uh, filmmakers and sort of created and sort of that whole process happens. Um, are you sensitive to that stuff or to the criticism of that? Or like when you're watching this winning time situation, are you thinking, Oh, interesting. Like I could see myself in that situation with what's gone on here. They haven't strayed in my movies, the movies of my books, Yeah, the characters on the screen 
are way are really close to the characters in real life, mm. uh, even in their mannerisms. The actors have kind of hewed to reality in a in a really careful way. So, and they haven't they haven't done. I mean, when they take liberty, I'm trying to think like where liberties were taken. Here's an example: is in the Big Short, um, the character one of the characters based on Steve Eisman, who they called they named him Mark Baum instead of Steve Eisman. And Steve Eisman had an actual tragedy in his life that darkened his view of the world. Um, and it was in my book. It was, he, he lost a child. He lost a, um, in very curious circumstances. Then a nanny had smothered the child, uh, maybe mm. fallen asleep, whatever. I don't know exactly how it happened. It was a baby. And he was very sensitive about me writing about it, understandably. Um, and then he decided that he didn't want them. He didn't want it in the movie. So instead they gave him a brother who had committed suicide mm. uh, and it didn't, it actually, so that rang false. It wasn't as true. It wasn't as good as, as serving the purpose for the character. Um, but they had to do something uh, except for that. That's the one instance where I think, wow, they really just kind of took something and made it up other than that, I, I, the characters wouldn't have had much to complain about it, it was sort of like it was like the book and they didn't complain about the book um so I, I i would worry about it if i had written a book and jerry west hadn't thrown you know trophies through windows and had a drinking problem or whatever it is he's got in winning game a winning time if that wasn't in the book and they put it in the movie I, I would have said, I think you might going to get in trouble. You might be getting in trouble for this. I, but I don't actually know. I don't know what he actually did and and what's true and what's not. So I'm a little bit speaking out of school. But but it it I just haven't I haven't seen them take those kind of liberties. They're little liberties, you know, uh, conversations that never actually happened, uh, but not really big ones taken by the movies. When you're watching Winning Time, though, and it is so entertaining, obviously, and there's a lot of criticism about the lenience leniency that they're taking with characters like Jerry West, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Do you care as a viewer? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Neither. Not much. I, I'm more interested in the, they're creating this character and I'd rather just um, watch the character. I don't care how true it is. Um, you can't, you, it, as a viewer, I am a basketball fan. Mm -hmm. I know enough about what happened that if I don't know, uh, they made Kareem Abdul-Jabbar point guard. Uh, that would have been a problem, you know. They, they, yeah. they, so they they can't they can't do that. Um, but so as long as they aren't really violating some deep understanding I have of the material, uh, no, it doesn't bother me at all. It just has its own, it has to have its own internal logic, uh, and it does. I mean, it clearly does. Um, it's funny because uh, I getting my wife to watch sports on TV used to be impossible sports movies. I mean, sports, yeah. sports, that kind of thing. Um, they're getting so much better at it at getting to my wife with sports related mm. content. Ted Lasso is the first really good example, but this right. is another example. She's engrossed in this mm. and, and has absolutely no interest in basketball. Uh, and so that it, it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's really working. And I assume they have a massive audience and I'm assuming that's why Jerry West is so upset. Well, I I've been trying to b tell people about it. And every time I try to tell a friend or be like, you have to watch this, it's they'll send me an article. It'll be Kareem's not happy about this. And then there's almost <laughs> like a shame or embarrassment watching it. And I feel guilty because I know the people who are being portrayed don't like it. Is, is there like a, a writer's code? No, you know, it's funny that, well, the, the writer of the thing, the writer of the book is Jeff Perlman yeah. um, has stood by the, the filmmakers mm. um, and is, I think it has got his own arguments going with people mm. who thinks he should throw them under the bus. Um, the, what I have noticed is it, I think it does cause trouble for the film. If the writer, if the writer mm. disapproves, disapproves of it. So I've never, I mean, I've been incredibly lucky. The things that, that have been made in my books, I think completely abide by the spirit of the book and they're really well done. They're great. Mm. And so I've never had any cause for complaint. I think my, my view though is even if I had a cause for complaint, I took their money. I sold <laughs> them the book. Uh, 
I didn't put any restrictions on what they could or couldn't do. I really, I really shouldn't be complaining publicly about whatever they do. Mm. Uh, and I think I would just go, I, if I was in the situation that Jeff Perlman is in, I'd probably do kind of the same thing. I'd probably just go hide. Yeah, on that, uh, on that tip, Michael, yeah, you know, I, I think about, uh, your professional life and, you know, you, you're a book writer, you write magazine profiles, you have a podcast, your books have been turned into movies. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, are there parts of your professional life that continue to sort of surprise you or ways that you make money that you're like, Oh, like if people ask me about the band's finances, I'll go, well, actually, you know, touring, we make a little bit of money, but like we'll do the odd private show and that really helps pay the bills or we'll get a commercial for a T-Mobile ad and that they really pay a lot of money, like that kind of stuff. In terms of your, the Mike, the Michael Lewis business, is there parts that would be interesting to just a fan of yours that go, oh, actually this part, I do a little bit more on the side here or this part delights me in a way that I was unexpected when I got into this business of being Michael Lewis, the writer. Well, you, I think you'd be amazed how much money I make stripping. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, that, and it's just a little gig. It's just a, it's, it's a hole in the wall. In Oakland, word, right? Word, yeah. gets, Close, out, word gets out that I'm there and people show up with like C-notes to stick it in, in my G-string. And, <laughs> money balls, and, yeah. And so, right, exactly. That's, that's the name of the show. That's his nickname. How'd you know? There's you know? money uh, balls. So the stripping, aside from the stripping, um, <laughs> the uh so what is it's funny that if i think about there's a very loose relationship in fact no no really good relationship between how much time i spend on something and how much money i make mm. from it and that's the disconnect yeah. so i can make a lot of money very quickly doing private events mm -hmm. talking just giving a speech mm -hmm. um which requires no effort no time mm -hmm. i can make a little money sinking my heart myself heart and soul into creating seven really complicated stories in a podcast mm. uh it, it, it takes all kinds of time and it just doesn't pay that well but i love doing it mm -hmm. um the uh used to be true of a lot of magazine work just it didn't pay nearly to justify the time mm. if i were just trying to make money if that was the only criteria if i was trying to maximize revenues i do nothing but write books that would be the thing to do mm. uh write books and give speeches mm. that would be it everything else is suboptimal mm. and but i don't really think very much about it. i just think i got to make sure that i got enough coming in that nobody's that that everything gets paid for but after that i don't really spend a lot of time thinking about oh this is a waste of time i i, I think much more is 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 it creatively worth doing mm -hmm. um and uh, so the, the other thing that might surprise you is how much of my time in the last 20 years has gone into writing screenplays for TV shows and movies that never got made mm -hmm. and for which I was paid handsomely. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm right about to write one now for Apple, for Apple and touch wood, it gets made. And I have a TV show that's a, a drama, um, it's it's like the, it's my unslaked ambition to actually run a run a TV show. What hasn't worked about it so far? Hard, to, you know. In a in a couple of in the very beginning, I said what didn't work was me that I did I was still learning how to write the scripts and tell the stories for the eye, uh, for the screen. Um, more recently, I'd say when someone in the entertainment industry says yes to a movie or a, it's more a TV show is what I really wanted to a TV show. They're committing to spending tens of millions of dollars. And it's very hard for them to pull the trigger and say yes. When the person who is going to be the showrunner or creator of the thing has never done it before. When I, you're kind of outside, mm -hmm. I think that I, I just don't have the chops in the industry. I think the success of the movies has helped some. I think what's helped a lot is the splintering of the entertainment industry. So there are lots of different places that make shows and they make it for a little less money, but they make, they're just, they're, they're, they're throwing much more against the wall to see what sticks. So they make this, make it more stuff. And it helps that I've got a really, I've now got a really established partner who they will trust. Mm. Um, but I think part of it is just like, I was, if I, if they threw a whole bunch of tens of millions of dollars in me to make a TV show and it flopped, 
they wouldn't have a good excuse for why they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I've had that feeling for a few years. You know, the in Against the Rules, you talk about you're examining unfairness uh, in American life. And I find um, this, the podcast, especially compared to maybe some of the Wall Street stuff you've done, it feels a little bit more community minded. Like, you, you know, you're you're looking at these people that are really contributing to their communities. Where do you think that instinct comes from? Like, you know, you, you have a natural curiosity for people that are productive and useful and helpful and don't seek acclaim, uh, especially where, where, where do you think that comes from? My mother. What did your mom do? What was she like? It's a very, it's very clear connection. Mm. Uh, my mom is still, you call her a civic activist in new Orleans. Mm. Um, she has been, she's kind of behind the scenes. In, in has been kind of run every philanthropic organization in the in in the city of New Orleans, and is behind still behind the scenes in a number of them, and she, um, to give you an idea of her influence, the the newspaper was the New Orleans Times Picayune, and the 300th anniversary of the city uh, some years ago, a few years ago, did a did a series on the 300 most influential people, important people in the history of the city, starting with Iberville and Bienville, who kind of create, found it. And my mother was one of them. Uh, wow. so, and, but my mother was always, she was, she, she was, she never, she gets up early every morning and starts, goes to work, just figuring out how to help. Mm. And, uh, and I think that my interest in those kind of characters comes partly from watching her. Now with the podcast, the other thing that's going on is although I'm writing the show and largely framing all the stories and finding the subjects. I ha- it's, it's unlike the books, which are really an individual sport. It's a team sport. And I've got three producers around me, all of whom nudge me in that direction. I think, I think they're, I see what they're moved by and, and I'm, and so their tastes end up finding their way into the show and they like those characters. Um, so, but, but short answer is my mother. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. the longer answer is the negative, the, it, the, the reverse of this people who are rich and famous. Um, uh, I've seen, I seen, I saw from a very early time in my career that there was very little connection between how much money you made and how, how, how valuable you were to the society. You just look at wall street, there are all kinds of people make all kinds of money and they're basically raping and pillaging. Uh, and it, not all of them, but enough of them that you can see that it's nonsense to try to measure the value of a person by how much attention or money they have attracted to themselves. Yeah. I I took, uh, I was rereading Liar's Poker and there's a great excerpt. If you're a self-possessed man with a healthy sense of detachment from your bank account and someone writes you a check for tens of millions of dollars, you probably behave as if you've won a sweepstakes, kicking your feet in the air and laughing yourself to sleep at night at the miracle of your good fortune. But if your sense of self-worth is morbidly wrapped up in your financial success, you probably believe you deserve everything you get. You take it as a reflection of something grand inside of you. I was like, oh, I love that. You know, It's like that sort of detachment from your contribution uh, when you only see money that way. Yes. You say you, you're just measuring what's in your bank account or you're measuring how many times your name is mentioned in the newspaper or whatever it is. Um, not the best way to go through life, I don't think. And I like to reward people who aren't getting attention. You know, like, mm. you know it's really nice. I know that w- when I write something about someone, I'm shining a spotlight. They're very, you know, the most useful place for me to shine that spotlight is where there's no light at all. And uh, when there's already a lot of attention to being paid to something, I get wary. I think, well, what what purpose am I serving here? I've had some exceptions, like where I thought the story's so good and I have such a peculiar way into it that even though the person gets a lots of attention, they're worth writing about. Obama being maybe the best example, um, but um, that that I could that it was it was that it wasn't a waste of time shining the light there that you could add something. But most of the time. The characters are people that other people aren't paying attention to, even when they're like professional athletes. They're not the athletes that people are paying the most attention to. They're people who are things people think of as bit players or role players or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. it's finding sort of finding their and explaining their value. We probably have time for maybe one more one more question. Um, Mike or Shane, uh, do you want to take it away? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, you're speaking about sort of 
you've become a famous person. Your your name carries weight. You can open doors. You know, you're talking about getting the show made. Um, and it seems like you like to shine that spotlight, use that power. But I'm almost fascinated how you, because you're somebody that obviously thinks a lot about many things and you frame things in a very unique way. How did you sort of um, frame your own fame as you became more prominent and as the name Michael Lewis started to mean something? Did, did, did anything change for you or did it happen gradually? Like, how did you sort of think about your own sort of situation as it evolved and you became sort of the Michael Lewis that you are now? Well, I actually don't think I'm a famous person. I think famous person is Brad Pitt. I mean, I could, nobody bothers me when I walk down the street. Some of the books are kind of famous because of the movies mainly. Um, like really famous, like you can say the blind side to anybody and they've seen the movie or heard of it. Um, but not, I, I, so I've never really thought of myself that way. Um, and I'm always a little surprised when others do. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, being a writing books. If you get it there, if they're bought and read, um, get you a certain kind of renown. It's just, it's different from what you do. I'm not a rock star. Like nobody's like screaming and, 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 you know, begging for my attention. Um, so, so it's, it's not that hard. I, so I don't really think the, 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 the part of your question that like resonates with me a little bit is if you've had success doing something, writing a particular kind of thing, you have to work, I think, a little bit not to just try to repeat it, uh, that, that not, to, not to fall into the trap of doing something because it worked before and you want, it, you want the success rather than the doing of the thing. So I've been pretty careful about trying to break with whatever the last thing was and do something a little different each time um, and taking on things because they were a little different and challenging my readership such as it is to follow me places where they might not think they wanted to follow me. Um, so I, I try not to, I try not to become a character, uh, in, in my own, in, in this, in the story of my writing life. I saw there was a real object lesson of this for me, a writer who, who is best stuff. I just loved Hunter, Hunter S Thompson. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I read his stuff. When I was a young writer, I read his stuff. I didn't like all of it, but the stuff I liked, I really liked. And towards the end of his life, um, I got invited to come visit him at his house in Woody Creek, uh, Colorado. And it was late at night and he was drinking a lot and he was great. He's a delightful guy. We got him to read some of his old stuff. He did it with great brio, but I couldn't, but, but around him on the, he drunk himself into oblivion. He just drunk himself out of writing, but, and around him on the walls in his kitchen were big, basically card, big pieces of cardboard with, with passages from his old writing that where he was kind of gonzo Hunter S Thompson that were, that sort of defined him as a character. And he used them to remind himself of the character he needed to play in print. Um, and I think that's a trap. I think if you get, if you start kind of thinking of yourself as the character that people are coming for, I think that, that it's a very dangerous game to play. And I don't play that. I, I mean, I'm writing about other people and drawing the attention mostly to other people. So, um, so avoiding the fallacy that I'm a famous person and people are interested in me is, is, is kind of important, I think. Oh, last question. What's on your, um, your writing playlist? Because last time we talked, you talked about how you like to write to happy music. And, no, and, and, it's, and it's probably and it's, hadn't changed that much. I'll tell you, yeah. I'll tell you something. I got it right here. Yeah. Um, it. But it's, uh, I, you know, I don't change it. I change it after a book. I change it when I'm going into the next book. And mm -hmm. so this is largely, this is largely what I would have written the premonition to. Um, mm. And it will, it will massively adapt, be adapted when I start the next one, which I think I'm going to start soon but you're, it's going to be so embarrassing this no is, we I, love it there's, there's no such the thing as stuff. a guilty pleasure just gonna sit there say, laughing at my musical text uh ed sheeran shivers uh, <laughs> yes. uh niall horan so long hmm. uh vampire weekend harmony hall yeah waving through a window ben platt in in uh in the that uh evan hansen yeah. show dwight yokum suspicious minds 
If this is goodbye, Mark Knopfler and Emily Lou Harris. Share, <laughs> just like Jesse James. <laughs> um, let me see if I can find Daniel Rodriguez, Colorado. You ever hear him? No. Check no. It out. Probably check not. It out. That's a, a friend of mine runs his band. And mm. so, uh, hey, Julie, Fountains of Wayne. Open your nice. eyes, Snow Patrol. Snow Patrol has a couple, makes a couple of appearances here. It's some, um, mm-hmm. I have not gotten rid. I think for several books, I've been unable to shake Romeo and Juliet with Martin Offler and Emily, Emily Lou Harris. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so there's a, there's a sampling of what's on no, there. They're like 25 songs. That's um, awesome. And it just plays on a loop and I don't hear it. I mean, it just shuts out everything. I hear it, but I don't hear it. Mm-hmm. And it creates this Pavlovian response that when I hear the song, I, I think, I better start writing. Uh, and that's a very good thing to have, to have that trigger. Like, oh, time to write. It's like a walk-up song for a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, write every day? Um, no, I don't write every day. Uh, I write I write to deadlines, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> I, 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 gather, I do something every day, but it's, I mean, today I recorded, I just finished recording episode six of the podcast, just tracked it. And, uh, and I started to lay out episode seven. but. No, 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 I don't write every day. When I'm writing, when I'm actually gone deadline with a book, yes, I write every day and uh, six or seven hours a day. You ever pull an all-nighter the night before the deadline? <laughs> Close. It, that with ch- children made has made that hard because I st- we still, our youngest is a freshman in high school. He still needs a ride to school at 7.30 in the morning. And so it's really hard to do that. Once he's out of the house, I might revert. I used to, mm-hmm. uh, and I might revert. I, that I really like writing late at night, and um, and that that I, I could see myself going back to that. But it's just it's deadline. It's like I owe someone something, and that was, I don't, I never sit down because I just have to express myself. Ever, um, if I didn't have this career that required the words of me, uh, no words would come out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's like demand pull uh and uh it gets whatever gets me i mean that's what gets me going once i get going the words come out of me and how are you at with notes are you cool or do you just implode what do you mean when people criticize what i do yeah like i work in editing and sometimes i'll show someone an edit and i'll ask for their opinion but if they give me notes i kind of hate them (laughs) (laughs) the problem is with with this is my relationship to editorial advice is almost always this. The people who are providing the advice very seldom, almost never, know how to fix the problem. They might have, they often have suggestions about what needs to be done, but they are almost always right that there is a problem. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes they don't even know what the problem is. They just smell a problem that something's not working. So what I get from editorial feedback is something's not working. What is it? And oftentimes I had a sense that something was not working and this is leading me to what's not working, but then I have to figure out what's not working. And oftentimes the solution is really radically different from what they would have imagined. And the problem's different, a little different from what they imagined, but they identified a place like mm-hmm. something's wrong here. And, um, and so that that's what that I really value that. I really value the editorial advice generally because it, it does it got it gives me a sense of when it's not working. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Um, I can tell you, you know, every time you put out something new, I am blabbering on about it at a party uh, as soon as I consume it. I'm like, and here's the thing about the thing. And, you know, really. And, you know, when it comes to it's like, you know, some people, uh, what rock star would you want to meet? So and so, and and usually the answer for me is no. Because you are a rock star. <laughs> no, but but talking to you really, um, you know, you you've really brought so much uh, comfort, uh, and you uh, you you allow us to see the world in a different way. So your your service uh, to my life is uh, is really rich and really meaningful. So I just wanted to to tell you how much uh, we love you and um, and really just appreciate the time. This is uh, the coolest thing of the of the year. Yeah. Thank you so much. And you've just talked your way into free tickets to the money balling strip. (laughs) (laughs) Money balling. (laughs) When you're next here, like, well, I will really, you're going to get a special. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm I'm weeping here, pouring my heart out to you, Michael, and you're just talking about your stripping days. Okay. No, <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Thank Michael. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Really, thank you. See you guys later. Anytime. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.